0: Oh, it's a goal! Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello. So we're back off the game, week six, a week where Mo versus No dominated the headlines, but ultimately ended in a stalemate. We aren't talking about that this week, but instead, joined by Nick in Cyprus, hopefully, and uh, former FPL winner Simon March, we're going to be delving into behavioural science and psychology and how that impacts FPL managers. Quickly, Nick, how are you? How's Cyprus?
2: Yes, very good. Thank you, Tom. It's our second international pod in a row. It's uh, hot here, but staying in a luxury villa for Moses' first holiday away. Have been afforded a couple of cheeky hours, though, to record the podcast. Just hope the internet stays working. I'm thrilled to have Simon with us today. Uh, just to say quickly before handing over to our guests, um, we are Who Got the Assist. You can find us on Twitter at FPL, and use Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you'd like to listen to subscribe. So, welcome to the pod. For those who don't
1: know, would you mind introducing yourself to the good people? Uh, sure. So thanks very much for inviting me on the show. Uh, my name is Simon. Uh, this is my ninth season as an FPL manager. And in 2015, I was lucky enough to win the FPL.
0: Thanks, Simon. Welcome for me too. So today we're going to focus on the behavioural science, as mentioned, or behavioural economics you prefer, and talk about a few basic principles and their impacts on FPL managers. hope you guys find this interesting. It's a bit of a feature pod once more. Uh, but we'll keep it simple, keep it accessible and not get lost in technicalities as it's uh, often the behavioral scientists want, right, and so, um, We'll then, of course, move on to the features and take your questions.
2: Sounds great, Tom. And thanks for the questions this week. Let's start with Game Week Reviews quickly. So, Sai, as a guest,
1: how did you get on and how are you doing so far this season? Um, I did okay. Uh so I, I always think that um anything above sixty is a good game week. And I got sixty-one, so I'm uh reasonably happy with that. Uh I bought in Richarlison uh, who immediately blanked, um, but he was he was pretty much a longer term option. Um and Bellerin, who was a bit of a punt um and against the odds got me a clean sheet. So actually all four defenders got me a clean sheet, which I think is a first uh well for me at least, uh I think. So I'm pretty happy with that. Um a little bit annoyed that I transferred out Bernardo Silva just as he got 14 points and had Fabianski's oh. 11 <laughs> points on my bench. Um, oh no. <laughs> but I can't complain too much.
2: Yeah, that sounds all right. So listen you no, know, I I pulled my wild card and and I scored 65 points, which is um a green arrow, which is a decent return um for any game week for sure, though like, on the wild card week I guess you'd always hope for something a little bit extra special to sort of alleviate you, you know, against your peers, but I still, it's onwards and upwards for me. Now I'm sort of at 350k, so slowly sort of reaching that sort of respectability. And had the clean sheets for Alonso, uh, Robertson and wan And the goal for new signing Mitrovic, the usual Salah consistent seven, eight points. I guess the letdowns were sort of David Silver not playing, um, when obviously he would no doubt have hauled against a, a very poor Cardiff. And a last-minute goal for Bryson, which meant the trippy clean sheet was wiped. Yeah, that was
0: an eight-point swing in my direction, wasn't it? My man Duffy assisting uh the goal for for Knocker at the very end there. Uh, sixty-seven points for me, uh, took a four-point hit, brought in Hazard, brought in Mitrovic, um, sold Aubameyang and uh who did I sell? I can't remember now, and sold Pedro, um Oh, that was before actually his his arm knack, so I got, I got very lucky there. Uh, Mitrovic returning was obviously good, but I knew uh, kind of it was written in the stars almost that Aubameyang was was going to score a bit of a pain that Hazard also blanked. But you know I'm I'm an okay shape. It's just what I do with Mendy now, really more than anything else. But you know that's just the way it goes. Some weeks. 67 as as we've said is is quite a good game week and uh, getting back into the wacky races now. I'll be there soon. But let's move on to the main topic of this week, which is table science and talking about that. So behavioural science is an interesting area, psychology is an interesting area, and talking about how that impacts FPL is something that was behind the genesis of this pod, really, wasn't it, Nick, in some ways. Behavioural science, to me, is a way of including human irrationality in our understanding of behaviour. It's worth mentioning there's no single discipline of behavioural economics. It's using lots of different things, from cognitive psychology to psychotherapeutic techniques, to understand why people act the way they do. And it's important before we get into this to say that not all the things we talk about are bad we do these things for a reason. They're, they're there to help us cope with the information that's thrown at us and help our brains interpret what happens around us. it would be fascinating to see what you guys think in terms of how this relates to FPL. Uh, Simon, what are your views in behavioural science? I know you're studying this at the moment. Yeah, so just to give some background to that, so I'm, I'm currently in the latter
1: stages of um, of doing a MSc in behavioural science at uh, London School of Economics. And um uh, I'm actually writing my uh, thesis uh, on a football-related topic, um, which is is quite fun. You know, considering that some of my classmates are, you know, tackling subjects like um, uh, infectious diseases and uh, uh, how to improve recycling and and stuff. I'm tackling the big topics uh, like football. Can kind of contextualise the interest. Uh, some people think of um, FPL as a game about football, and you know, others think about it as a game about stats and. Uh, some people say it's a game about luck, and all of them are sort of correct. But it's also got a big psychological element, and uh, more and more, I think, you know, we're beginning to focus uh, on that element. And to some extent, I think a lot of the time, FPL is a game that you play against yourself, and a lot of doing well in FPL is is really about not shooting yourself in the foot with your decision making. And so, you know, behavioral science um, is you know one of those branches of of economics that doesn't view uh, humans as as sort of stock like characters. Um, you know, it, it recognises that our behaviour is driven by all sorts of you know unconscious cognitive biases that can cause us to see patterns that don't exist, or you know believe in things that aren't true, or generally behave in ways that aren't in our,
0: our own best interest. All right. Uh, let's start off with herd mentality. Then everybody uh, has has heard about this to some extent. And it's the twin urges of fear and greed and, in, and how they impact your decision-making. So this isn't a bad thing in any way, shape or form. If you think about it, you know, um, in an FPL context, on one hand, you see a player that you haven't got and you fear that other people get the points that you won't. And on the other hand, you're greedy for those points. And this also links in with concepts like peer pressure and a few of the kind of, Biases and heuristics, which are basically terms for the shortcuts, the mental shortcuts your brain takes to navigate the world around you. This links in with a view of those. Uh, numerous studies have proven this to be true. My my favorite is uh, one by a scientist called Solomon Ash in 1995, called the Conformity Experiment, where he lined up a group of people who each was told to give a wrong answer to a very basic question. One member of the group wasn't told about this, and that uh, you'd expect that they would therefore be providing the uh, you know the, a different and correct answer. Uh, compared to all the others who are telling something false. My test showed, in fact, the person did not answer correctly and gave the wrong answer because everybody else also seems to be responding wrong. So why do people's answers not follow their own senses? This can be explained by information and peer pressure. Information, people assume that other people around them are more likely to have the right answer to a question than they do, so they're inclined to copy their responses regardless of their own intuition, and peer pressure. We fear uh, not being part of a group and have a need to answer what everybody else is answering when they're watching us. Sharif in 1935 also looks at that. But it's an interesting one in terms of conformity, um, how conformity creates a template, for example. Simon, what do you think about this? How do you think herd mentality impacts FPL? And uh, do you think it's a good or bad thing, I guess? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it. I think it can uh, massively affect it, and it it can also be a good or a bad thing. Um, You know, if you if you ever read uh, books like uh, *Wisdom of Crowds*, um, you can see the two sides of of this sort of groupthink effect. That you know, a lot of the time it it can lead to you know much better decisions, um, but also at the same time it it can lead to you know mass hysteria and uh, you know economic bubbles and you know all sorts of uh, irrational uh, things. I think in terms of some of the underlying uh, biases that we wanted to talk about with respect to these, um, you know, one of them, one of the contributory sort of biases, is uh, availability heuristic, and this is essentially that our perceptions and decisions are overly influenced by recent uh, events or examples that we can easily recall or bring to mind. Um, so, for example, in FPL, uh, our perception of a player's value is often heavily influenced by how that player has just played in the last game. You know, for example, you yeah, think how differently you feel about Eden Hazard or Ryan Fraser right now after a blank game week compared to how you felt about them after they had huge scores in game week five. This is basically where bandwagons come from. Um, and I'm sure you'll see it later when you talk about market forces. But I, I, I wanted to sort of illustrate it with the most random example that I could, I could find. And so I, I had a look back through and I noticed that um, in game week two, Steve Cook of Bournemouth scored 14 points. And his net transfers in went from eight thousand the week before to three hundred thousand before game week three. so that demonstrates yeah how hugely influenced we are by you know the most recent information. And because we're influenced by the availability heuristic, we tend to overstate the likelihood of something that is actually quite unlikely happening based on a few examples of it happening. For example, There are relatively few players that do well in their first Premier League season, but our Game Week 1 teams are often full of them. And this is because we can easily bring to mind memories of players like Michu or Pascal Gross who did well in their first season, but we also very easily forget all the players who didn't do well. But for the same reason, we overstate the likelihood that uh, Sergio Aguero or Harry Kane will score hat-tricks and because we all remember occasions when they did. So when we're looking at transfers, it's worth questioning whether the basis for your decisions And the examples that you're using to justify it, whether they're exceptions to the rule rather than the rule. And also, if a player has done well in the last game week, it's worth asking the question, do the conditions still exist for him to do well going forwards? Because anyone can have a a good game week and FPL managers obviously want to use resources on players that will continue to do well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also true of you mentioned the market forces earlier of, of a few examples. And Nick, I think you uh, you dug up a couple which may be relevant for both availability heuristic and also kind of the wider point around herd mentality.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, one example with last season, I guess, was, was Stephen Ward, um, sort of a run-of-the-mill Burnley full-back. Um, he started the season at 4.5. I actually got him in on my wild card. Um, I think it was game week six or game week eight last season and uh, caught some absolutely crazy price rises on this guy. He ended up going up all the way to 5.1 as people um, wanted to invest in, in the Burnley defence. And he, he seemed to be attracting most of the uh, transfers in. Um, and, we kind of sort of looked at him and was like, why is everyone sort of bringing in Stephen Ward? And it seemed to be the herd mentality, uh, you know, the ownership increasing and increasing on this guy, um, despite the fact that, you know, he was operating a, a team sort of, you know, who were performing quite well defensively, but, you know, there wasn't anything special. And no underlying like, statistics that really sort of said bring in Stephen Ward. Uh, but obviously as an owner at the time, I, I was thrilled to, to catch all those random price rises yeah, on this. cashing guy. in. <laughs> Exactly. Um, And I think the interesting case this season actually is is Holabaz. I mean, he's now up to 4.9. He's had quite a lot of rises. Um, I mean, there's obviously um, an appeal to him. He's on the set pieces for uh, Watford. He's taking the corners and uh, Watford are doing pretty well. I think they're fourth in the league at the moment. You know, they've got Arsenal up next. He's actually now on four yellow cards. Um, So there's a risk of suspension there. But still, uh, people aren't too interested in that sort of um, thing. And, you know, he's had 45,000 transfers in and uh, I think his uh, ownership will continue to rise and rise as the the herds go with him. Talking about sort of more premium assets, good ownership is, is one factor why I kept him in my wild card. When I guess there was other options out there, I could have, you know, been a bit ambitious. Um, and brought in the likes of Harry Kane. And I think with with Kane, the Herd's not quite there. Uh, When when on paper, if you actually look at his fixtures, they're pretty damn good. You know, Huddersfield next, um, last season he scored three goals and assists in two games. Then it's Cardiff, a newly promoted side that just got hammered 5-0 and 4-1. And then after that, it's West Ham and he's he's had seven goals and assists in in the nine games that he's played against them. So it seems like the, the Herd is sort of like, everyone kind of sticks together and you know, you look at who's, owned and who's been transferred in you kind of you kind of stick with the crowd to a certain extent even though, and when people try to differentiate
0: often it, it blows up in their faces so I can understand the appeal to a certain extent yeah exactly I think there's definitely an element of a confirmation bias there isn't there in terms of the fact that if you're looking to make a transfer a lot of the time the available information is about the player who is hot at that point the the, the, the available information the availability heuristic is fed in by the fact that there's a certain player that everybody loves at that moment well, there's a couple of examples, I there not where the herd mentality hasn't quite worked out. I'm thinking Walcott. I'm thinking Richarlison before the red card, but that was arguably a little bit unlucky. But Walcott is definitely a very good example. Confirmation bias, just to reiterate, is both the idea that you focus on information that backs up the theory that you have, uh, but also is that you actively discard information, which runs contrary to that idea.
1: I think confirmation bias is one of those uh, ones that most FPL managers are are probably familiar with, but we probably all uh, are quite subject to it. Um, As you mentioned, it's where you overvalue information that confirms your own belief or preference and undervalue information that doesn't. So for example, if you're thinking of bringing a player in, Uh, you're more likely to notice or look for information that supports that idea. And this player's name will jump out of pages at you and you'll put greater emphasis and credibility on rate my teams that you see with that player in. And the problem with confirmation bias is that you're looking for other opinions for a reason. It means that there's something that you're uncertain of. So if you want to overcome that uncertainty and make informed decisions, then you have to pay attention to all information, uh, whether it supports your, your own belief or not. I think sometimes people tend to
2: sort of manipulate the statistics to to sort of, like, improve their argument. And we saw it a lot this season, actually, with Sergio Aguero. There seems a lot of manipulation of data to suggest that he's not actually doing as well as we'd like to think. You know, people are like, actually, this guy's only scored in one game so far out of the six games available. And he's like, hold on a second, he's scored a hat-trick. He's got three assists so far as well. He's, um, you know, top of the shots on target for all Forwards, But, you know, people are manipulating the data to suggest that he was out of form. He'd only scored in one game. And it's just like that's that's sort of classic manipulation of data to sort of confirm the bias that perhaps we shouldn't be going with Aguero. We should be going with, you know, another striker that
0: seems to be improving like Lukaku. I think a lot of the time, as well, like you know, if you see stuff like a differential kind of threads on uh, Twitter or whatever forum you tend to use, like those will pick out specific stats, won't they? So I think it's very interesting how stats definitely get marshaled um, to to fit your kind of opinion. And a lot of the time, even though stats are very useful as an objective on paper source, the interpretation is what turns them into something which is framed a little bit differently, and you end up with kind of salient stats being wheeled out as being key, and I think that kind of links in with scarcity heuristic a little bit, which is kind of the flip side almost of availability heuristic and herd mentality and going with the crowd. Ludo also alluded to this um, in uh, David Wardell's book, uh, *Wasting in the Wildcard, which uh, Simon and us also feature in. The scarcity heuristic is an interesting one. It's the idea of uh, the value of an asset or product being higher to you depending on its scarcity. And uh, this product or asset uh, loses value as competitors also begin to own it. So, think about this as being a different. And I last year fell prey to the scarcity heuristic very strongly. So, I put a lot of value on differentials last year to some extent. For example, captioning Sanchez over captioning Solara on two occasions when Solara returned and Sanchez did not. And um, I lost out on a lot of points because I looked at Sanchez and thought, oh, the interest is very low. If I get that captaincy off, then that's going to be really good for my rank. However, the ownership was low for a reason, because the guy had just moved from Nice in the first case, and again, we 34. The guy wasn't performing, uh, whereas Slar was. And it's a very interesting idea in terms of how a differential can equally lead us astray in the same way that the herd, in the case of someone like Walcott, needs us astray too.
1: Yeah, I think, again, echoing uh, what Ludo uh, wrote about this, um... Uh, A lot of the time, the scarcity heuristic, I mean, it it leads us to this idea that we value something, obviously, the more scarce it is. So, yeah, it could also describe why we also like to play the more expensive players over the less expensive ones, uh, even in uh, cases where the less expensive one might score more points. And, you know, the two kind of classic examples from recent seasons, the Kane in 2014-15 and and uh, uh, Riyad Mahrez in uh, in, uh, 2015-16. but it also underlines you know, why you should never listen to someone who says, you know, oh, if it if it costs, you know, if he costs that much, why don't you captain him? And you're not captaining him. You know, what's the point in having him? It's you know, such a illogical uh, question. But it's one that you see time and time again, and you're driven by the price of this player, and supposedly, you know, that's supposed to inform your uh, your decisions. Whereas ultimately, you know, fantasy football is about you know going after points. It, it, it's not the hope that your most expensive players will uh, you know, perform the most for you.
2: 100% agree with you, Simon. And I think uh, this year's case, I guess, would be uh, Wamba Saku at 4.0, 4.0. I think he's up to 4.2 now. But um, my plans actually this game week were to um, bench Robertson and um, start Wamba Saku, and I got a slight little bit of uh, derision uh, in our slack group for for that decision there. But I, I think mental, it, ma- it makes sense mental. to a certain to a certain extent. I mean, Robertson's playing Chelsea. That's that's a really tough fixture for him. That's whilst Wamba Saku's got the the easier fixture, so to speak, um, again. Bournemouth and he's just come off the back of two nine-point returns but to start um 4.2 million pound midfielder rather than going for the top cat um, Robertson at 6.2 you know um, I, I get judged for it slightly when I'm thinking actually you know not looking at the value of the players I want to go for the player that I think will return more in that particular game which um, in my consideration is uh, is Wambasaka.
0: Oh, that definitely makes sense, Nick, to some extent. Um, I still think you're a little bit mad, but uh, that's just kind of your, your lookout, I suppose. And um, I guess finally to round off this uh, this whistle-stop tour before we, we talk a little bit and med- meditate a little bit on what this means for FPL. You mentioned Mars and Mares feeds into something which is, uh, delights in the name of the hot hand fallacy or gambler's fallacy. 2015-16, he was 5.5, and I think when he started scoring, people were looking at that going oh, there's there's no chance that's going to continue. Uh, In the same way Aaron Ramsey kind of functioned the year before and Josh King the year after, and uh, to some extent Mo Salah last year, people look at it and they think, oh, you know, there's no way that's going to continue. In the same way that if a player doesn't do anything for a couple of weeks, you start seeing people saying all around, oh, he's due, he's due. Um, this is linked to the innate idea that all things are, are fair and they even out in the end. So yeah, Luck evens out in the end. Hence the idea of gambler's fallacy, which is the irrational idea, of course, that a gambler has. that At the end of the day, the cards are going to end up dropping their way eventually, which to double down and lose those money. To phrase the question to you guys, how do you judge whether a player is actually about to stop or about to go? or when do you think, oh, hang on, I may be falling prey to gambler's fallacy here?
2: I think I think it's tough, Tom. I mean, like obviously, you got to look at the online stats and think, okay, this player's in a purple patch. You know, is this FOMO again? Am I mad to kind of, you know, not look at this player and you know, jettison him in, into my team? You know, in a good case, this, this game week, I guess, would be Madison. He seems to be the player on form, the one that everyone's bringing in this game week, and I'm like, oh, you know, should should I should I bring him in? And I'm I can't, you know, at the moment because I'm actually I'm kind of putting the faith in. David Silva, despite the fact he didn't start, I'm thinking that in my mind, David Silva still still better money for value as opposed to this this guy that everyone's sort of raving on about. You know, he's, he's he's a new young star for for the England team. Everyone's sort of seeing him take penalties, score free kicks, and you just have to you have to kind of weigh it up and look at your own team and, and make that decision. And for me, I think Silva uh, um, still still first choice at least for the next game week.
1: Yeah so this one is a little bit uh close to my heart at the moment because I'm I'm currently writing my thesis on the hot hand and the gambler's uh, fallacy because I've looked at the last 10 years worth of uh, of data I actually know whether statistically a player is more likely to score having scored but unfortunately I can't talk about it at the moment um and uh, also I know how many football fans believe in, in the hot hand effect and and it's it's an interesting one because it's been going back and forth you know whether this idea this, this sort of conditional relationship between scoring uh on one occasion making you more likely to score on your on your next occasion yeah, in, in kind of academic literature this has been going back and forth for almost 35 uh, years and a lot of people have claimed to have proven that it doesn't exist and then you know more recently people have started to prove that it does exist in uh in various sports uh like uh Uh, basketball but what I think you need to ask yourself is do you believe that goal scoring form exists then ask yourself if this same player um, you know say it's Aguero if he hadn't scored in the last game or two what do you think is most likely to happen in the next game now a lot of people will say that he's due a goal and therefore he's more likely to score so you know we think that at the same time that a player is more likely to score because he has scored, and that's the hot hand. And also that a player is more likely to score because he's not scored, and that's very consistent with the with the gambler's fallacy. And you know, it's it's equatable to the idea that if you flip a coin four times and it lands each time on heads, the next time it'll it'll land on the tails. Um, and as Tom mentioned, you know, it's this idea that we have that that small samples uh, even out over time. If you flipped a hundred coins, then it probably would be close to fifty-fifty. But if you if you flipped you know five or six, then it it, it probably wouldn't. So uh, I'm not saying if the hot hand or the gambler's fallacy are statistically wrong or right when it comes to football, mainly because you know I've had to survey, uh, or I've surveyed a lot of people, and I might need to do it again. So I don't want to overly influence them. But the question here is: supposing that the hot hand and you know the gambler's fallacy they weren't a hundred percent right how much are your influence uh, your decisions influenced by them um and so it's worth asking yourself you know firstly you're putting more emphasis on the belief in form theory and g theory than arguably more objective indicators like of goal scoring probability like how good a fixture it is or what uh, players underlying stats are saying so i guess the advice here is to make sure that whatever you're looking at that there's at least some objective information in there and Secondly, it's worth asking ourselves, you know, if we're looking for trends or patterns in very small samples of data, uh, are we being overly influenced by them? We don't always, as fancy football managers, have all the data that we want or need, um, especially at this early stage. But if anyone thinks that they figured out the season and how it will pan out based on this uh, first six games, then they're almost certainly wrong. And yet, you know, so many of us feel like we do understand you know what the big trends are going to be uh this season and this is why so many good fancy managers talk about flexibility being key you almost have to assume that things will go differently to how you anticipate and sometimes the best thing that you can do is put yourself in the best position that you can to put them right when they go wrong so Think twice before tripling up uh, on a team or um, putting all your money into, say, defence because after a few games the defence is smashing it, or forwards because, you know, several premium strikers have uh, have all scored in a recent game week. I think these are the kind of uh, things that, that we need to be aware of uh, and conscious of. And, you know, perhaps the, the overarching uh, moral of all of this is to say, you know, a lot of people say, go with your gut. And there's something romantic about the idea that, all your FPL answers lie somewhere within you. But what behavioral science is saying is that you should at least question these gut feelings before you act on them because ultimately nobody's gut is that smart.
2: Yeah, 100% agree with you there, Simon. I think we we see it every season. Game week one is always, you know, an absolute disaster. Despite all the preparation that we do over the summer and the analysis, the statistics, so much happens to every single player that we have no idea, you know, how they're going to perform. A lot of the players that we touted at the beginning of the season, for instance, I had the likes of Rio Mares, I had the likes of Diego Yota. Um, Mares did well this game week, but he wasn't really starting for Pep and didn't start this game week either. Yota's not adapted um, perfectly to the Premier League, league, but I had to think fast and get rid of these players before my ra- before my rank was too um, too heavily damaged.
1: Well I'll tell you what Nick that this actually goes back to what we're talking about with the availability heuristic. That this idea that you put uh, greater emphasis on yeah uh, information that you can recall easily and and this is yeah potentially why you know so-called casual so you know basically i mean everybody knows one of these people somebody that you know that isn't really interested in football uh they've put together their fpl team for the first time and you who loves fpl and listens to podcasts about it every week you know it takes you until about january to overtake them yeah. You know if you if you do at all and you know why do they do so much better in the early stages than us fancy managers that really really spend a lot of time uh focusing on on you know, information and, you know, trying to look for any advantage that, that we can. It's possibly because they're, they're using the availability heuristic in a positive way. So they're substituting the question of who are the best players, which is what we're all thinking about as, you know, more serious fancy managers uh, for the question, which players have I heard of? And as a result, they're picking more established players who take fewer risks early on. And, you yeah, know, this pays off, at, at least for the early stages of the season. You know, meanwhile, us Season managers are all trying to be clever and, you know, we're going for some obscure player that Cardiff have just bought from the Wackers Liga and, you know, it takes a lot of time for us to to correct, you know, these decisions and and that's really the upside of the availability heuristic.
2: I think the classic case this season, I guess, would be um, Kieran Trippier, who um, started at twenty five percent ownership. So more more established managers, I guess, knew that he wasn't going to start the season; that he needed a little bit more rest and recovery. But um, and you know, a number of managers thought, "Oh, this guy. Oh, you know, he did really well for England. Scored a free kick in the semi final of the World Cup. You know, let's bring him in." And uh, whilst he didn't play the first game, which we all kind of knew, if you were kind of you know, in the zeitgeist, um, he then got an he got two eleven point returns in game week two in game week three so all those sort of casual managers that drafted him were sitting pretty with their 22 point return after three game weeks uh, from from Trippio whilst none of us actually owned him
0: Very very annoying isn't it I think just coming back to it finally it's it's that ineffable thing called form isn't it that often dictates how well a player does anticipating the fact that form is going on or anticipating when form is going to start is definitely something which is an example of, of all of us trying to catch the pigeon and not quite getting there. The one kind of stat that I've been looking at more and more recently is conversion. I think that that is an, is an interesting topic in and of itself because it is basically the extent to which a player is going to be converting those, those chances. And uh, a lot of that, the, the higher the percentage is, maybe, maybe. The idea is that the player is informed that there's something ineffable behind it. That he is converting those shots. Like If you watch you know, kind of uh, Mo Salah against Leicester a couple of weeks ago, he had the early chance. And last year, you'd be expecting that to go straight in. This year, it didn't quite happen. There's a couple of quite good examples of maybe where conversion has dropped off. And, and we can maybe think, oh, maybe form has, has kind of been impacted here. And so, Salah last year um, converted 22% of his chances into goals. This year, that has uh, veritably plummeted right down to 12%. He's lower than the likes of Fred. Uh, Kante and Hendrick, obviously they're interesting examples um, but the big one is Aubameyang so last year and then on the pod um, early on in the season we spoke about his conversion rate being a bit ridiculous so he converted 32.3% of his chances in that half season and 13 appearances into gold which is pretty damn ridiculous this year he's he's kind of dropped off a fair bit he's now at 14% And there are kind of indications that, uh, okay, this week, yeah, he scored, he was offside and there was a a little bit of a ruckus about people who kept and people who didn't. But there is something maybe in that conversion stat, I'm thinking more and more, that may be an indicator of how well a player is doing in terms of their actions in front of goal. And there is maybe something about a player who is converting a lot there may be be beyond the unsustainable kind of argument that we're hearing that maybe the player is in form and that is what is contributing to the fact that the player is getting you points in fpl ultimate maybe there's a stat there to help us assess that idea at least of hot hand fallacy in a player who is in form and trying to establish that all right let's take a break there then guys and move on to the features who got the assist who got the assist Hello, so we're back and we're onto our features section now. Uh, this is where we have our three regular features uh, Market Forces, Zombie League, and the All England team. We're going to start off with talking about that availability heuristic again. It's the Market Forces. This is our section where we use our FPL NTI data to describe the movers and shakers in the transfer market. Nick, you're the man over the numbers. What have you been seeing this week?
2: Most transferred in player so far this uh, game week is uh, Alexander Mitrovic of Fulham. Um, he's had over 110,000 transfers in. He's doing really well, actually. Um, he's sort of top of the crown in terms of those mid-priced forwards. There's injury worries for the likes of Nautovitch. Questions over Zaha's mentality means that everyone's sort of moving towards that prolific Serbian. He's now netted five goals um, in the campaign out of six games, so it's really bam-bamming him in. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've got him in my wildcard. Uh, you, you're a fan of Mitrovic,
1: Simon? Yeah, he very nearly came in in the uh, in the last round. Uh, he was actually the the transfer that I wanted to bring in him and uh, Fraser. And then uh, Mendy got injured, and uh, I thought, okay, well, you know, I can hold on to. Uh, I've got Josh King in that position that I wanted to uh, to switch out. I do like him. I'm always a little bit suspicious of strikers, you know, from promoted teams. You know, they they really have to have the conditions to do well. And you know, when you look at Fulham's fixtures, they do sort of look alright, but you know, their next good home game is is maybe four game weeks away, and that's Bournemouth uh, at home. Um, so I don't know if we're going to see, you know, a slight regression maybe in, in Mitrovic's uh, points, but um, thus far it, it doesn't seem like anything can stop him. So, uh, you know, he's, he's certainly as good an option as anybody right now in that sort of budget to mid-level forward uh, category. Generally, seen a trend, I guess, of like sort of, Big number nines
2: doing well in the Premier League. We've seen it in the past the likes of Lambert, um, sort of Glen Murray, sort of exceeding expectations. Troy Deeney as well. Whilst those sort of like, those sort of attacking wingers, you know, I was touting um, Yoto in the pre-season. I was. You know, I was a fan of Knockout, I guess, last season, who's only sort of, sort of catching the vibe right now, um, you know, they, they seem to struggle a little bit in the Premier League. Cesson, I guess, is another good example, someone who did really well in the Championship but struggled in the Premier League. But yeah, um, his teammate, Mitrovic, is really doing well. But another one, actually, from a promoter team who's just second in terms of most transfers in at this moment in time, James Madison. He signed for Leicester, of course, and uh, yeah, he's he's now with three goals, one assist. It's illustrative of fact, I guess, like he, he's showing a lot of promise. He's, he's really adapted to the Premier League well, and he's, he's on set pieces and uh, penalties for the Foxes. I, I, I was close to sort of like actually uh, just naming my team um, this season, but I, I ended up uh, going with
0: uh, sticking with David Silver, which is as I said, sort of blew up in my face to a certain extent. I think it'll be all right, though. I think Brighton next and uh, David Silva. Obviously, Bernardo Silva did very, very well in that game. I think it was 14 points, wasn't it? Um, but I think it'll be fine with David Silva in that game. Like Madison, we said then we pre season that if he gets a set piece, which looks like he does, it looks like he's on penalties, if Vardy's not on the field, but has those free kicks for that fantastic, sumptuous uh, set piece again uh, in the last game. And, uh, yeah, I can see why people are bringing him in, especially with Leicester uh, having a fantastic set of fixtures. I mean, they've got a, a few which are a little bit questionable coming up. They've got Newcastle new who are quite tight at the back. Everton, who certainly are not. And Arsenal, who certainly are not uh, game week seven, eight and nine. But then after that, they embark on a run of seven fixtures where they don't face any of the teams uh, in, from last year's top six, uh, which is obviously very favourable and may well list a lot of points for managers. And you can see why he's been brought in as well. Um, if you look at the transfers out. We've got Pedro, who's been sold by almost 100 managers. We've got Mkhitaryan who's been sold by 75,000 managers and we've got Pereira as well who's been sold by 50,000 managers. So uh, there's a lot of movement in that kind of midfield, mid-range bracket. And with Madison, I think he's uh, one of those players who's got quite a low ownership overall at the moment. He's sitting at just 9.6%, but he's one of those managers that's very highly owned in the uh, in the top 10K. I saw, I saw a stat the other day which was saying that he was owned by almost 40% right now. Could it be that, you know, Richarlison or something is going to overtake that mantle in, in the long term? But at the moment, it's looking like Madison is the kind of uh, the Baidu jewel for a lot of people to solve that midfield woe. Yeah, for sure. I think um, there's no
2: surprises the like Mikateri and Pedro being transferred out. Both have injury concerns and the sort of owners, I guess, are tinged with regret the fact that they even brought these guys into the first place. Um, the other person you mentioned, uh, Simon, was, uh, was, of course, Mendy he's the most transferred out player at this moment in time with over 250,000 transfers out yes I think last game week there was a, a certain amount of patience with Mendy um, with his sort of injury woes due to the prolific start and the, and the fact that a lot of people um, had sort of wan as cover who would um, be playing from the bench however this, this is likely now to be his third successive game week where he's not going to be playing and um, you know the price falls are starting to hit um, and we're seeing people reinvest elsewhere and you know I think it, um, owners are finally, you know, losing patience. We've seen um, TAA, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, had 90,000 transfers in. And that's a, that's a bit of a funny one, actually, guys, because I think, you know, he's, he's got a couple of really tough fixtures, but the assistant then pointer seems um, enough for this particular bandwagon. Perhaps it's influenced slightly as well by the fact that Virgil van Dyke's had 45,000 transfer outs um, after a rib injury, which meant he was subs prior to 60-minute uh, mark. What, what do you think about uh, TAA then?
1: Yeah I'm a little surprised that he's uh, so high on the uh, list of uh, players uh, being brought in um primarily I suppose because yeah Liverpool have got two uh, pretty rotten fixtures uh, coming up but then again you know it's the the recency aspects I mean he's been doing well so far so you know maybe people aren't looking as far ahead as uh, as we are I still don't think he's a bad option. I mean, you know, the price that that he is, I wouldn't be too worried about uh, playing him even in uh, in, uh, tough fixtures uh, because, you know, it it enables a stronger team uh, elsewhere. But for me right now, I mean, I have Robertson and I'm not looking to get rid. But if I didn't have him, I probably also wouldn't be getting him in. Not right now, at least. I'd probably be looking more towards game week nine when uh, Liverpool's fixtures uh, start to get pretty good again.
0: Yeah, that certainly makes sense. And, you know, in terms of Mendy, you've got quite a motley crew of uh, players being brought in to We mentioned uh, AWB, uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka being brought in by 95,000 managers, so looking to rise again from 4.2. You've got at uh, the other end of the spectrum, we've got Trippier uh, being brought in by uh, almost 70,000 managers now. And a few people making the straight swap to another City asset. So you've got Carl uh, Walker being brought in by 60,000. Uh, you've got Laporte being brought in by the same amount. And below that, you've got players like Holabas, who we spoke about earlier, who uh, maybe is a little bit of an availability heuristic pick. Almost 50,000 managers now. And uh, Willy Bolly uh, rose the other night. He's now 4.6, but brought in by 31,000. Uh, the one I'm eyeing up to replace Mendy with is actually Doherty, um, who's only been brought in by 20,000 managers. Still remains on 2.3%, despite the fact that he's been all over Twitter for quite a while in many differential list. Nick, anybody else who's caught your eye on the market forces?
2: Yeah, I think the uh, the last uh, salient point I guess to mention is um, one of your men, uh, uh, Tom Bilba, uh, with uh, over seventy thousand transfers in so far, uh, which I guess is um, an interesting one. Uh, he scored fourteen points against Cardiff, so you know that's always sort of going to attract ownership. But I've always been suspicious of these players that are sort of like. To a certain extent, rotation risks. He has started the last games, uh, last two games against Pep. But before that, he only played thirty-two minutes in the Newcastle game, only sixty-one in the Wolves game. And and we know that, like, um, you know, we started to see the likes of Sane get more minutes, um, Gundogan as well. Um, also played really well in the last game week. And after the next game week, which I really hope David Silver will play, I think it is time to start actually ditching those city assets because they're just they're just too dangerous. You know, Mares as well starting a lot of the time off the bench. Sterling is always a great FPL pick, but he's just so expensive, and we, we just don't know. We just don't know who Pep's going to play. It's just too much up in the air. And after this, really,
0: like we mentioned, the six games, it, it gets tougher for City after that. Very interesting, that one. OK, let's move on to uh, the Zombie League then. Uh, this is where we uh, catch up with the progress of our shambling zombies run by unspecified family members living at our address, of course. This is our no-chips, no-transfers, no-changes league. And, uh, yeah, differing fortunes to you and me, Nick. Uh, I, I'm 43 points my Zombie League team this week. More flags than the Sheldon Cooper TV show. Pascal Gross, uh, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Tom Kearney, all flagged red out. Ashley Young and uh, Pereira didn't play this week. Uh, Duffy came off the bench, but only had nine men in the end. Aubameyang, uh captain with the goal. Um, but other than Duffy, it was only Espelicueta, me and Edison, uh, to round off three clean sheets, which was good. So the rest of it was an absolute shambles, fistingly for the zombies. What about you, Nick? How did your zombie team get on?
2: Well, I guess it was, it was kind of a bit of a sort of scrappy-do uh, performance, but somehow they... They must have returned only one point less than my wildcard team, which is, is a bit of a joke. Oh, instance, okay. <laughs> 65 points, but that's actually um, using full use of my zombie bench, and which I'm you know I'm glad is is taking effect that the, the squad is performing, even if there are injury woes. So um I had the likes of Baye, Mendy and Altovich all not playing, but that meant that knockout um departure and Masuaku all cave in. Uh, so knockout got oh, seven, depart five, um Masuaku got me. Elsewhere, I had Riyad Mahrez with his sort of brilliant bench performance with a 12-pointer. Harry Kane's starting to deliver with a 9. Luis with a 6. And um, Salah captain with his sort of standard 8-pointer make that 16. Um, Yeah, delivering for me. So, yeah, they did pretty well. And a little green arrow for my Zombies.
0: Oh, that's decent. And uh, just round off the Zombie League quickly, uh, the top five, uh, the top two are the same. So at Blue Care Free got 55 despite good and 10 men. Uh, in second, 65, the Zombie 11 by MP um, with the captain's and in Salah and with Bernardo Silva in the uh, in, in the 11 there with 14 points which is pr- pretty damn good. Glenn Hamilton has uh, appeared in the top three. Uh, as has Doctor Mister and Annabelle Christie with Sir Pancelot and uh, that's an interesting one too. Uh, she's got Aubameyang, she's got Ramsey, Taa as well with eleven points, uh, definitely weighing in there to to give her a good score. And just to round off the feature section, uh, we're going to catch up with our All England team now. There's our team where we celebrate the three lines achievement back in the sepia-tinged days of the summer um, at the World Cup. Uh, we're running a team from start to finish with all English players. And, yeah, they did quite well this week, Nick. Uh, 62 points. Unfortunately, some uh, someone uh, who may have been managing them, uh, who wasn't me, who was with me, unspecified family member, was also um, at the airport in Faro and failed to to make changes this week. That did mean, unfortunately, that uh, TAA's 11 points were on the bench and uh, Ryan Bergen's one point was on the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> However, a captaincy for uh, Raheem Sterling, uh, Jamie Vardy, Harry Kane, um, returning men that they ended up with 62 points in the green arrow. Um, so not too bad. And they're now in the top 1.5 million, but they will be managed a little bit more properly. Now me and my unspecified family have returned to the UK. Okay, let's take a break there, guys, and then move on to the questions. Got
2: the assist who got the assist so we're back and it's time to catch up with the who got the assist mini league and it's, it's another week where we can actually provide a proper update which is always nice for the listeners as opposed to to saying oh well we think he's top we're not too sure because the league is still being updated so uh, yeah um, top of the league uh, this this game week is uh, Kaer Moy Heart um Ashley Humphrey with 83 points which you know really decent score for the game week topping Andrew McKinnon being on out by just one point so so well done Ashley third is sort of K Hills off eyes James McKay um I think that's another new entry to the top 10 um he got 71 points 460 still very close at the top everyone's all very tight iron laddies Kirk Goodwin and uh, Aldum, Leviosa, um, a play on the Lingardium Leviosa that we've seen quite a lot of. Guy Dea, both with 459 points. And, and then it gets, it's still very tight below that. We won't run through everyone. So um, really well done, guys. Uh, very tight in the league at the moment. But top at the moment by just one point is Ashley Humphrey with 477. Great score. A game week rank of uh, 10,000 um, in the world. And uh, overall rank of 28. So doing really well. Um sort of you know just really solid team I had Bernardo Silva as well 14 points and Joe Hart did nine which I guess were the differentials and um, this game
0: week as well as Lacazette's another interesting differential with eight points yeah one shot one goal Lacazette yeah very well done guys and uh, well done to Ashley cool uh, let's move on to the questions thanks very so much for your questions this week uh, we've got a fair few uh, the first one is probably one that I'd be expecting it's can you take the chance Stephen Toomey FPL tipster and Riandica uh, all asked whether Kane is worth bringing in now over uh, the next three looking so, so good. And Amar also asked, who would you bring in from Spurs if not Kane? Uh, let's put this over to Simon first, because you're somebody without Hazard, aren't you? And you may be able to kind of just about rustle up the resources to bring in Kane. What are your views on, the, on our Harry?
1: Yeah, so the, the plan for a while has been to bring in Hazard. And uh, actually, I'm probably going to do it as, uh, as soon as we finish uh, this, because uh, it looks like he's going to rise in price. Uh, tonight. Um, for for Kane himself, I mean, yeah, I think looking at his performance so far, so he's got a pretty much 50% goal-scoring record. Yeah, it isn't too bad. It's not brilliant by his standards. Um, but, you know, it's enough to have some uh, faith in him. Spurs are maybe turning the corner now I mean they've had a pretty wretched run of uh, of form Uh, looking ahead I mean what worries me about Spurs is that if you look at their next fixtures up until maybe game week 15 they've only really got two decent home games in that whole stretch they've got Cardiff in game week eight and uh, Southampton in game week uh, 15 and otherwise uh, they've got Man City and Chelsea at home and Except for that, it's it's just a huge run of uh, of away games, um, you know, presumably because of their uh, stadium situation. So, I think it's always tempting to bring in uh, Kane. I don't think that he's necessarily a bad option. I think he's actually a a, a good option. Um, but it's it's really you know who you're giving up to get him in. And at the moment, I don't see necessarily a much more compelling case for Kane long term than for say Salah, who I think is probably the player that most people would be looking to uh,
0: sacrifice for him. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. And I can see a lot of people who are thinking, well, Kane is a high-octane captaincy alternative, a differential captain. And that's always something which is very, very interesting. So, for example, you know, like every year, Mark Southerns, uh, if he was on scout class this year, he would be saying, oh, you know, I'm looking at Kane, and looking at bringing him in. Uh, Game Week 8, especially, is where a lot of people are looking because in Game Week 8, uh, Man City play Liverpool. So that knocks out a lot of the existing captain choices. Well, the existing captain choices being Kun and, uh, Kun and Salah. But Eden Hazard is away at uh, Southampton and uh, Harry Kane Spurs are a home to Cardiff. So that's definitely something that people are looking at and thinking, well, if I get him in now, I've got a guaranteed bona fide captain option there. And maybe I'll kick on, as Nick said, the Cardiff's recent uh, record isn't very good. One stat on Kane, I thought it might be worth bearing out just quickly. We mentioned conversion earlier on. And this year, Kane is actually converting more shots to goals than he was last year, despite the amount of shots he was having. So this year, his conversion rate is 17.6%. Last year, at 16.3%. He's had far fewer shots per game than uh, this time last year. He's he's no longer taking shots for fun. However, it looks like, for whatever reason, his conversion is a lot higher. I mean, obviously, there's a penalty to be fat in. There's a few other things to be fat to them. But having Harry Kane in uh, at the moment, uh, given where the ownership is... Which is, let's be fair, just 25% compared to what Kunigura being on 50, Salah being kind of top 40s. That could be a really, really big rank boost for a lot of people. It's just, as Simon just mentioned, trying to maneuver the resources to try to make that work, which I think would maybe be quite difficult, especially if you're not a wild card. Nick, who uh, from Spurs would you be getting in if you weren't going to be getting Kane?
2: I think there's definitely a case for Harry Kane at the moment. Obviously, the next two fixtures for Spurs are brilliant. They firstly play Huddersfield, as we mentioned, who are third for most shots conceded so far this season with 63. After that, it's a plum home game against Cardiff, who are second for most shots conceded with 67. So like you said, Kane is like the perfect sort of captaincy option for that game you but And um, actually in the last game week as well, he's, he's, we talked a, a fair bit about the MI behind Kane and the fact that he's, you know, he's taking their shots and a lot of the top strikers and, you know, he's really, really behind compared to where he was at last season, obviously his he's, um, shot accuracy is a little bit higher but when when the amount of shots that you've actually taken is lower than like sort of of Ralph Jimenez and Danny Ings and and you're 12.4 is like is there much of a case for him but actually in the last game week he started to show a little bit of the the old Kane you know he had four shots on target five shots in total in the last game week which is sort of third for all strikers there's definitely a case for Kane in terms of other Spurs assets I've got Trippier I'm happy with the coverage and you know, I was looking at Mora a fair bit. But I am now worried about him. Uh, I think there's a lot of rotation risk there with Mora. Like Sir Min Son, obviously, he's back from the Asian Games. Uh, Deli Ali, uh, back from injury now as well. You've got um, Eric Lamella knocking on sort of Pock's door saying, I want more game time, having scored in the last game. And I think that's that's a risk. There's always the safe hands of Ericsson as well, but he seems to not be performing in the league. And he's quite expensive. Um, and you really need to see more returns from him in the league before you can start investing in um, Ericsson. And there's your man, Daddy Alli, Tom, but
0: who's um, still recovering a little bit from injury, so perhaps not the best pick either. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe Trippier is the one that a lot of people are looking at, especially with the vacancy, which appears to be opening up because Mendy's out. And Trippier is in the top three for chances created for defenders with nine. He's also in the top two for crosses uh, for defenders behind the uh, Holibas uh, with 43 um, however, you know the Barcelona game, I think, is probably the one that people are looking at, um, the one that I especially look at and thinking, well, that sandwich between two very, very good pitches for Spurs, as you mentioned, and maybe the Atomorier is going to come in and take that particular game. So I'd be a little bit worried about that. Um, however, it does constitute a pump. We know it's a pump. Kane is going to play almost definitely those two games. I wonder if uh, Fernando Llorente knows how to play football anymore. Um, but he's definitely going to play those two games. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see the uh, see the appeal of uh, of drafting Kane in. Whether I do it to sacrifice Salah, I'm, I'm not sure. I can't because I haven't got a wild card. But if you do have a wild card, I can see why people are doing it. We may see a lot of people uh, doing very well out of that. Cool. Uh, let's move on to uh, another big ticket player, uh, Hazard. So you just mentioned Simon, you'll be bringing him in this week. Uh, has he got our vote? Uh, Sigurd Erksland asked if he now uh, gets in Hazard with Mane and Salah, the two people he could be removing, or whether he, he waits it out. So Simon, you're looking at bringing in Hazard, despite the fact that they've, they've got Liverpool next. Uh, what's your thinking behind that uh, and why are you uh, now looking to take the plunge with the Belgian maestro? So I think if we went back a week, then it would feel like an absolute no-brainer to,
1: to be bringing in Hazard. Um, and, you know, you almost wouldn't question it. Uh, right now, I'm in the this sort of interesting position where I have both Salah and Mane playing. And so my options are really, you know, do I play those two against Chelsea or do I play, you know, Hazard against Liverpool? And right now, I sort of feel like my exposure to Liverpool is a little bit too high. I've got Robertson, Salah and Mane. And, and I think, yeah, Hazard is somebody... I could bring in longer term for Mane, have the three big uh, heavy hitters of Hazard, uh, Salo and Aguero. Um, and then I feel like I'm quite well set. I know that, you know, this game is obviously very changeable and, uh, you know, there'll probably be a few spanners uh, thrown at, at those plans. Um, but uh, right now, I think that those are the three big heavy hitters uh, to uh, to have. And, you know, obviously we should be flexible. but. That's really what I've been working towards for the last few game weeks. I got a little bit lucky this week uh, that Hazard didn't do uh, brilliantly. But, um, yeah, I think he's got a couple of uh, tough fixtures, but he doesn't have a, a, a bad record in uh, in those sort of games uh, anyway. He's on uh, penalties. Um, around of those, he's got some good fixtures, game weeks 11 and 12. And he's got back-to-back home fixtures against uh, Crystal Palace. And uh, Everton, and also, I mean, the the bonus that Hazard really has over most of the other heavy hitters uh, is that he doesn't have Champions League football. And when you look at some of the fixtures that players, the Liverpool players have, the Man City players have, the Man United players have, and the Spurs players have coming uh, going forward, um, you know, this could really be a major advantage uh, for him. He was rested in the last one. He might play in the Europa League, but uh, you know, the idea of a, a fresh Hazard versus a you know, a heavy hitter from one of these Champions League teams that might play 60 minutes, might not even play at all. I still think for him, he he kind of edges the options from those, but I still think it's him, Aguero and Salah, uh, to be honest, who are the, um, the three big heavy hitters to have.
2: Yeah, I think certainly um, Hazard, Salah and Aguero are, are sort of making that template. I just wonder if there's a case for Kane. Uh, I'm, the, the more I think about it, the more I'm actually tempted to just just have a little cheeky punt and just throw him in and hope he he nets a hat trick in those couple of games, especially with Salah just just playing the top teams. I I mean I really hate the idea of having too many players in in those big games. And I guess if you already own Manny and, and Salah, so to get in Hazard makes. Sense to a certain extent, but we have seen in the past actually that Hazard sort of steps up another level for the big games and and performs above expectations, especially if the likes of Liverpool are playing high line. Eden Hazard
0: obviously talismanic for Chelsea, and he is at 34.5% ownership at the time of recording. So if he does score a goal, as size just mentioned, he's got a decent record against the top teams, yeah, it's going to be quite painful for non owners. I bought him in as a defensive move purely. I'm not a big fan of Eden Hazard, as probably a lot of people know, but he just looked like somebody you couldn't really get past. I think that we're going to see that in the future. So I, I completely understand why, you, why you're why looking at bringing him in, Simon. I think that, you know, after game week 10, especially when they've got their run of fixtures, Burnley, uh, Chris Palace and Everton. I'm a lot of people were looking at him again thinking, well, yeah, no worth bringing him in for those. And having him in Alonso just looks very template right now. It looks like you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you don't own either of those and Chelsea do score big. Because, you know, you don't want to see your rank reduced. to Barney Robles in the end, do you? Um, All right, next question is one for Simon. Uh, Nick and I have never been this high, so uh, our noses have not bled to the same extent. But FPL Boffin is in the top 1,000. And also a quick shout out to our friend uh, Richard Nijsland, Svenska Kungen, uh, who's in the top 20. What advice does Simon give to these guys? Uh, should they push on and be aggressive or should they play conservatively in their pursuit of FPL victory? So I think you you have to play to move
1: up the rankings because you know that's what everyone else will be doing. So um it, I, I guess it depends what you mean by play aggressively. I mean, if that means you know going full maverick and playing and taking loads of crazy risks, then maybe not. And yeah, obviously when you're you know, right now um at a uh, very high rank, you can afford to be a little bit more conservative than maybe the rest of us. But uh, if you're not moving up, then you know essentially you're moving down. So um, I think everyone has to always be looking to improve, and that should always be the ambition.
0: Do, do you have any other kind of advice for anybody around that area, like in terms of play style, in terms of how they should mentally approach it? Like, what would you say to somebody who's going kind to of be in the top one hundred at the moment and could be in with a chance, as you were at that point. Of uh, yeah, of- how, how do you win FPL, Simon? <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: tell us now. <laughs> so there's definitely, I think, two seasons when you're when you're playing FPL, and it, it, I think the the first part of uh, the season, you know, it's very much a case of getting to that that first uh, first place. And I don't think that that necessarily means or equates to picking you know, really massive differentials all the time. And um, sometimes it's just a case of Uh, looking at a game week where there are uh, there's a good option that most people are overlooking and you've just got to put your faith in that option and uh, you know that's your differential and sometimes that that can just you know push you uh that bit higher really most of the time it's it's a matter of consistency it's about you know scoring sort of 65 points a week and trying to maintain that over over the course of the season obviously there'll be game weeks where you score a lot more and there'll be game weeks when you score a lot less but when you get to around about the uh, say the top 100 then your your strategy really changes so and and it really depends where you are in the season i mean right now i'm not sure that your position actually matters that much because you know we know that there are some players that are currently somewhere around the lower millions that are going to end up doing really really well by the end of the season but i think when you get further on to the season you get to the second half and you get to maybe the last third and the last quarter it really changes now. If you're if you're top, and I was top for the last fifteen game weeks, my strategy was was very different to the one that got me there. And when I got to that point, it was a case of not playing my own game anymore and paying attention to the strategies that other people were, were taking and trying to cover it as much as possible. The analogy that that I like to use is uh, is in yachting. Not that I've ever been yachting, but as I understand it, the strategy in yachting is that once you get ahead, then you just do whatever the person behind you does, and that maintains your, uh, your position for as long as you can. The, the challenge that you have is that there's about 100 different people behind you doing all sorts of crazy things, all taking punts to, to try and catch you. So covering them all isn't, isn't possible. You, you've got to be quite selective about you know, which other fancy managers you really see as a, uh, as a, as a major threat, if you're around about that phase and you're not number one, then you're sustaining, sustaining for as long as you can to remain within touching distance. And then when you get to the last two or three game weeks, you just start taking a, a, as crazy uh, decisions as you as you possibly can. Oh, yeah. You take the, the biggest punts that you possibly can and, uh, and hope that they pay off. Um, the guy who came second the year that, that I won, I might be misremembering this, but I think that With about 10 game weeks to go, he was around about 100,000. And he had an incredible run right up to uh, the final few game weeks. And he made a lot of very brave decisions uh, that paid off for him. And and actually, in, in the final game week, he... Brought in Theo Walcott, who scored a hat trick, and and there was actually a point in that in that final game week where at the midway point at half time, if if all the games had ended there, I mean he started something like forty something points behind me, he would have overtaken me and won. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so sort of similar to to what happened to uh, Barrett uh, last year, where you, you lead for a very long time and then you you just get you get scuppered um, in the final um, game week, and so I got I got quite. Lucky, um, really, in the second half of uh, that game week, that a lot of my players uh, started to score. But yeah, there, there was one moment where you know that strategy, that extremely aggressive strategy that that he had and that a lot of the chasing managers had, was really starting to to pay off. And you know, my conservative strategy um, was looking like it was going to fail. Fortunately for me, it didn't in the end. But I think that that's the way that you've got to look at it. You've got to look at it in quite a nuanced approach, like not that you know do you play aggressively or do you play conservatively it's really looking at okay where are you in the league where are we in the season and using that to inform you know what your best strategy is
0: as you progress through it. Thank you Simon that's very really interesting so it's basically you know like a, a mid-league strategy almost when you're trying to close it out on a grander scale almost so Hopper, for and Verbata uh, uh, Richard hopefully that would lead to you uh, winning FPL this season. Final question is about Man City. It's an interesting one. It's basically uh, Jacob FPL and Goops also asked about this. Uh, Jacob asked about the City midfield, but I think this can all be uh, crystallised in Goops's question, which is, what do we do with Man City after the Brighton game when their fixtures start to tighten up? I mean, we were targeting this kind of little uh, first uh, section of the season for Man City. Then Crellian anointed this the best set of fixtures that any team have got this season we're coming through it now. We're coming to the end. What the hell do we do with city assets after this point?
2: So I've already sold D. So I'm now down to two city assets. One of them I mentioned obviously earlier was David Silva. I'm keeping him for the next fixture, and then I'm probably going to, to be downgrading him. There's there's a number of uh, sort of midfielders in the mid price bracket that sort of are meeting the eye at the moment. There's um, Madison, Richardson. We'll we'll see what my decision is. I haven't decided it could even be like pod perhaps United that may present themselves as a sort of a decent alternative at the same price. Aguero for me, he's, he's staying around for a long time. You know, I was sort of like talking about his numbers in the last pod as to why he's staying in my wildcard and, And I think there's a strong case for for him staying, even though, obviously, there is that sort of Jesus threat. He's far outperforming Jesus. He's clearly the number one choice in that sort of forward line for City. And I think he's going to be playing week in, week out, even if he does get sort of hooked a little bit early. Um, Every so often, we're still going to see goals from Kun. But I think, yeah, I'll I'll probably be sticking to just the one City asset after the Brighton game and then uh,
0: look to sort of, invest elsewhere yeah oh it definitely makes sense nick and i think that you know we've with, with been mendy for whatever reason suddenly falling out of the equation a lot of people are thinking well i could get away with one city as i go get with to here and i think there's definitely some mileage in that i mean for me i end up with edison on my wild card and uh, i might well keep him now I was very surprised that um, it's come this way, but I think I might, just because uh, Ben Mendy is now looking sellable, which I didn't think he was going to be um, not very long ago. After Bryson City, you've got Liverpool, Burnley, Tottenham, Southampton, Man and West Ham. And I think that, you know, we're going to see definitely a lot of sellers. A lot of people are selling them off, but it might be okay. Kind of, I'm always going to have a bigger issue than the goalkeeper to solve, obviously. Edison, I made a profit on him now, he's now 5.7, so I've got, I've got 0.1 to play with. It's just the case of whether, you know, I'm ever going to want that money. If I do want that money, he can go. If not, he can stay. But I think those are the only two players, Edison and Coneguero, that we can be sure of in the start of every game. Like, you know, Carl Walker, he got his rest very early on in the season. What's to say he's not going to play again for tactical reasons? We just don't know if PET, we love the PET roulette, and it's just the way it's going to go. And I think maybe it's going to be, well, Kun of it. going to be in many teams, the hygiene factor, maybe Edison will stick on if you do have Edison. If not, I'm sure I don't think that's a buy either. So, Simon, what are your views on Man City?
1: Yeah, looking at the fixture ticket, I, I don't really see it. I don't see this this necessarily this dip, oh, sorry, this this strengthening in um, uh, opposition. The strong fixtures even apply to Man City? I mean, that that's the, the question. Are they actually just good enough that they're going to play really well against uh, everyone? I think I'd probably... If I had three Man City players, I'd probably look to reduce that, and I'd probably lose the defensive assets before the attacking ones. I, I think that just makes sense because, you know, although I don't think these fixtures are, are terrible, I think their fixtures. There's a few in there where you could see them conceding, like against Liverpool, Tottenham, and Man United uh, you know, in the next six or seven. Equally, I think there's um you know there's games in where in there that you could certainly see. Aguero doing really well. You know, Tottenham, hasn't he got an a, yeah,
0: incredible record against Tottenham? He definitely does. I captain him a hat-trick away at Hart Lane. So, yes, he does. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was that. back in the
2: days of Michael Dawson and Kabul playing in defence, probably.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know if, uh, if that's... Uh, that's use of the availability heuristic by me right there. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it depends kind of what lens you look at, at, at these through. Um, I, I don't look at it and, and see that these are terrible fixtures for Man City. And, and perhaps more significantly, I, I don't see another big team necessarily with you know heavy hitters in it that have a big fixture. Um, switch around that time uh, you know maybe Chelsea but there's no others uh you know Man United's fixtures don't necessarily improve so if you're not backing Man City players yeah you know, who are you backing and if you're getting rid of them then you know you're you're getting rid of them before Burnley at home Southampton at home West Ham away Bournemouth at home yeah not to mention you know Spurs that we know uh Aguero <laughs> has a good uh record against Man United that could be a goal fest. Liverpool that could be a goal fest. I, th- I think this is one of those occasions where you know maybe look at the team before the fixtures. Yeah, don't get too concerned. Don't overcommit to Man City, but don't go for a fire sale on Man City assets
0: um, ahead of this run of fixtures. Uh, certainly makes sense, and uh, being aware of the rotation risk and having a decent bench is, as we all know, a very very useful thing to do. Otherwise, a bit ghastly. Pep is going to end up destroying your points. Let's move on to transfers and captains then. Simon, what are you going to be doing this week? What are you looking at and who's your captain going to be?
1: I've already got rid of uh, Mendy last week. Uh, so my transfer is going to be Mane to Hazard and super boring Aguero captain at home to Brighton.
2: I think for me, it's probably going to be boring Aguero captain and most likely rolling my transfer. Unless I get drunk and decide to transfer out Salah on a minus four to to Fun Kane. But
0: yeah, let's hope that happens, isn't it? just just for a bit of fun on the pod. For me, it's going to be probably another minus four. Um, Mendy's going to go. Um, I'm probably going to wait until the League Cup. I'm, at the time of recording, he's still 6.4. By the time I listened to this, he would have dropped. It's just the case of whether I'd have made the transfer or whether I'd be waiting. I'm not sure I can quite deal with the shame of bringing in Doherty and Doherty playing and him getting injured and him going off and people are going, oh, hang on a minute, didn't Tom just bring him in? So I don't think I'm going to be doing that. I'm probably going to be waiting and losing the 0.1 on the, on Mendy down to 0.1 profit, but I prefer that rather than taking the shameful transfer. I'm using that money to move Kearney on. I think Kearney will become Richarlison, um, and I'm going to double up and have Nick's favourite double Everton, Richarlison, and Walcott for Fulham and Mester. Um Oof. I know, I know. Well, I think I could do the minus eight for madison potentially but minus eight for a player in that range seems a bit excessive yeah, walcott's boycott he's he's really annoying but i'm hoping that a lot of people will sell him and he's going to do his usual thing and scoring a lot of points when people have sold him so let's hope it works out dead set on rolling the transfers in game week seven and eight because after game week eight we've got an international break okay there's a theme to every pod uh the theme last week was westworld do 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 and uh, John O'Four was the only man who got there actually uh, this week again is fairly obscure we thought we would keep to our non-mainstream uh, theme of pods but I hope a couple of you out there got it just try to link together all the different references we've made into a, a wider theme just say who we are again thanks very much for listening today uh, we are who got the assist you can find us online at uh, who and find us on twitter at wgta underscore FPL.
2: Yeah, and if you want to join our FPL league, our league code
1: is 516-441. We are joined today by Simon March. Thanks again, Simon, for joining us on the pod. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Um, As you know, I've been a a big fan uh, of the podcast for a while. So, yeah, it's quite a privilege to make an appearance. Thanks again.
0: Uh, The privilege is all ours, Simon. Thanks very much for coming on. We'll see you again in Game Week 7. We hope this assisted you. Until then, speak to you soon. Bye. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist?